Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. My name is Neil. I'm joined by Jordan, friendly Geordies, all over the media. He's being sued by John Barillaro. Uh, his uh, producer was arrested as well. Uh, so if you have been living under a rock, check out the Bruz saga. Uh, last week, we answered a subscriber topic, and we're going to do the same thing this week. We've got another topic from a subscriber. Uh, if you're interested in subscribing and sending us a topic, go to neilcolhatka.com slash podcasts. And we have different levels of subscription available. And really quickly, I'm going to do another shameless plug. Uh, go get this CBD oil. It's brilliant. Helps reduce stress, relieve anxiety, and you will sleep like a baby. Crush Organics. Go to Crush Organics. That's K-R-U-S-H, Organics, and use the code Neil. Make sure you use the code Neil. You'll get 40% off. Not Alrighty. Bad. In fact, before before we get into the topic, how are you doing, Jordan? You good? Yeah. Yes, I am. I've had a lot of time to think. I'll tell you what, just as a quick tip for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know what helps immensely? Who'd have thought? You ever got a problem in life? Just find who's an expert in that field and chuck them an email. Now, they probably won't respond because, unlike you, you're not friendly Geordies. But with me, they do. Just want to brag about that, I guess. So, yeah, you, you're screwed, basically. Look, I'm just saying, though, like, give it a go. <laughs> give it a go. What if they respond? was that? <laughs> I don't know. So damn it's bad. So badly constructed. I'm saying hey, if you... Mm, you are a peasant, so you won't be able to do what I just did because I have fame privilege. But, hey, it mm-hmm. worked for me. <laughs> Just when we did a podcast so about good. elitism, so good. Here you are. Buy this product, and uh, also I'm mad. Anyway, let's uh, <laughs> let's continue. What's the problem that you've been having? What what uh, issues have you been having? Everything I was okay? talking about it before, Jordan? but it was just I don't Is know. Is it erectile anyone? dysfunction? You know what? Sadly, it's getting there. I can see the trajectory. I see the the longer the. Ooh. You know what? I was discussing this with um, my girlfriend, and she was saying, "Why don't you want to have a sex as much when you're 21?" And you know why that is? It's because women peak in their 30s sexually, and men peak in mm. sexually when they're 18. So there's such a disparity there. It's so unfair. And you know what? I was describing it like this it's is such a tragedy. Your, your future. It is. It's such a tragedy. And you know why? She said. That's why that pool boy fantasy is so prevalent. It's always some hot housewife having ah. sex with a pool boy or pizza boy. They're not right. getting fucked that at makes home. Sense. So they want just the, the horny little dick down the street. But the way that I could describe it to everybody, I think that this is the way so I can fully understand having a limp dick by the time you're 50 or 40 or whatever. But now she was like, you never want to go twice in a row, but you did when you were younger. But yes, okay, a lot of that also is just the fact that when you're with a new woman, I probably could come six times in a row if it was a new woman. Just, sorry, baby, but <laughs> that's just how it works. Mm. But the other thing is <laughs> um, the difference, the difference I think I could describe is when you're young, after you have sex, maybe just like five, ten minutes later, you just get another erection and you're good to go. Then 
when you're like our age and you say, do you want to go minutes. again? It's five minutes, you know, you can go. Huh? It's, imp- it's impressive. That's impressive. I mean, maybe, I don't maybe know. I was too young ago. Maybe I'm wrong. To 20 for me. But that's, that's, okay, well, uh, let's just go to that. That's, that's probably more realistic. Bro. Five minutes. Well, no, but you're closer to that age. I can't remember. I'm just, this is all exaggerated and fuzzy in my mind. You're probably right. But when you're at my age, I think the difference is you can have sex again, but you've got to think about it. And it's a bit of an effort. Why don't we just watch the Twilight Zone? That's what happens. And I think that that's why. You know what? What? I was just going to say, you, you finish your point and then I'll, I'll chime in. One more time, Neil. Oh, I was just going to say, you finish your point and then I'll, uh, I'll chime in. What were you saying about uh, the Twilight Zone? Oh, right. Yeah. It's, I think another thing, you always hear this in pickup, that older guys, and it's just kind of obvious that a 40-year-old can fuck an 18-year-old, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of that, I think, is just experience and being comfortable with yourself. But how they're always saying in pickup that you just don't have to give a shit, bro. You just don't have to give a shit. You can understand that academically, but when you biologically don't give a shit, as in you watching a rerun of The Simpsons or having sex with a new woman is about equal weight, that's when you start pulling hard. Um, you are 100% correct. I uh, never thought I'd be saying this, uh, but uh, this would be shocking to my 21-year-old self. And I'm not even that old. What am I, 27? But, yeah, it's kind of gotten to that point as well where uh, I would have gone three times in a night and then once again in the morning, you know, good to go every single time. And now, like, I can, but I just I don't want to. Once mm. is enough for me. Mm. Once in the night and then cool. What are you going to do the second time? It's not going to get it. I mean, it'll be the same sort of thing most of the time. But worse. You, you might change it up a little bit, sure. But, yeah. And, and, and you, you, dude, as women get older, yeah, they, they get hornier. Hmm. What a tragedy well, it's been, that it's uh, such a tragedy. men are horniest when they're 15 and women are horniest when they're 35. And that is when they're most repulsed by each other. Although, having said that, no, a 15-year-old would definitely go for a 35-year-old MILF. But no 35-year-old woman is going to want to fuck a 15-year-old boy. Uh, no, I they actually would be think perfect for each other, wouldn't they? They would be perfect for each other, but I actually think that there would be a lot better chance. And now that I look back at it, a lot of the time, all the guys that picked up, they were fucking a lot of milfs. There were some chicks in the diet, but I think that also the fact that they were hanging around thirty-five-year-old chicks, just the fact that they were around someone more mature, made them more mature. And that's the other thing that also happens up until a certain age. And that's why older guys are also attractive is that uh, I think men mature slower than women do. So like a 15-year-old chick could probably hang around. Let's not use 15. That's a gross example. I wasn't even thinking about that. Okay. Like a 19-year-old chick could hang around a 35-year-old man and they could sort of get on, you know, like you'd still realize if you're 35 and they're 19, you'd be like, 
your 19. But I think that if it's a 19-year-old boy and a 35-year-old woman, you would really notice that they're 19. I think also like a, a lot of that I mean, also the reason that they mature yeah, is because of eggs. Yeah. It's all eggs. Guys have a yeah. lot longer to mature. Their body saying, you know, get that sperm while we're still while we're still producing those eggs. Um, but you really dude, notice it, it weird, man. You... Like it hit me. Yeah. I was just going to say like last year, I was seeing a girl right at the start of 2020 and then through the lockdown. And she wanted to have sex more than I did. And throughout all my adolescence and early 20s, that was always a huge imbalance. I wanted mm. sex a lot more than the girls I was seeing, and mm. it mm. caused quite a lot of frustration, actually. And then I always dreamed of having a girl that wanted, you know, had a sexual appetite like me. And then when it actually happens, I was like, this is kind of gross. Like, at one mm. point, mm. we'd already fucked, like, twice that day, and then we were watching uh, Interstellar, which is such a good movie, okay? And mm. then she wanted to go again. And I was like, I, I, look, I just don't. Wanna I, watch just don't I just I want to watch Interstellar. And she went in the bedroom and, like, fingered herself. And I was like, that's, man, that's actually wow. a turnoff. Whereas when I was a wow. teenager, that would have been the hottest Ultimate thing fantasy. on the planet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was like, that's kind of, I mean, I wasn't turned off, but I was like, oh, my God. In the same yeah, way, no, I control bet yourself. someone would think about it, you know. Exactly, like a fifteen-year-old boy wanking five times a day. You just roll your eyes and think, "Yeah, all right." Typical. Yeah, calm down. Mm. Hmm. That does make a lot of sense. Like the fact that you, instead of going for round two, would rather just round two of Interstellar. There is, and it wasn't like we, like I said, I'm pretty sure we had uh, done it once in the morning, and then it it was the afternoon. We'd already done it like twice that day, and I and I said, "Look, I, I just even Can't if I fucked. do come, there's gonna it's gonna be." You know, it's going to be so thin. You know, it's not going to be that good, thick sperm texture. No. <laughs> it's going to be that, like, <laughs> watery <tell> semen. <laughs> uh, uh, I remember that well from my teenage years. I see, I don't yeah. even, I can't <laughs> remember sperm that doesn't look white. I can, but I have to remember it. It doesn't come to have mind Have you ever gone anymore. a really long period without... Have you have you ever tried like no fap or just going like a long period without jacking off and then seen the semen at the end of that? It's solid. It's not a liquid. It's it's mm. <laughs> you're, you're giving birth to something. It's, it's sad, so isn't it? it's yeah. It's almost like um. I really like wish white we didn't flubber. grow up in porn. I know. <laughs> it is. That's actually a really good description. Yeah. You could and mold it, it together mad. into a bouncy ball. <laughs> yeah. You're not even joking. You could do that. Mm, mm. Yeah. I, I'm really I'm really sad that we grew up in the era of porn. I really am. I think that our sexual experiences would have been a lot better. We would have seen a lot more flubber come instead of that, what you're saying. Like, is this piss? I can't tell. Not that shit. I mean, there's good and bad, I reckon, because, because when you're watching a lot of porn, you're less incentivized to actually pursue women and have real experiences. But... Uh, especially True. if you're like, you know, on the you lower know, end of the attractiveness scale and you're going to face a lot of rejection. Um, but porn can give you good ideas. And I wonder if, if we had lived in a society where there was just print porn, 
whether you'd uh, have some of the ideas and fantasies that you could imagine to play out. Well, dude, allow me to chuck a U-term, use a U-term, allow me to steel man the other argument. (laughs) They always say, (laughs) they always say that people that grew up before porn, the innocence of discovering what you like and what you don't like and what is and isn't sex has been completely eroded with sort of this Hollywood version of what sex is. Which really, if you think about it, it's kind of like how women are always saying to us, I don't know, like, oh, they've just, they watch romantic comedies and it's an escape. Our version of that is way more fucked, isn't it? It's kind of just like three ways, just Pornhub. That's our fucking <laughs> version of romance. But the, um, <laughs> it's so, uh, yeah, it's but. really does describe guys in comparison to girls, doesn't it? It's just like, we're funnier and we're more disgusting. It, it really just shows up in like our sexual habits. Whereas they would probably masturbate to some fucking Ryan Gosling film where he's just like, I, I, you know, just before he wanted to go, I just wanted to say, I love you. And they're just like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's different. Oh, uh, I don't know, man. I, um, I think the, the women in their twenties today are pretty, uh, pretty open a lot of uh i don't know if they're just uh masturbating to romantic comedies i think they've got all sorts they definitely have different fantasies to men female sexual fantasies are very different i've been meaning to read that book actually where it, uh it's called my secret garden or something like that and it's 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 just a testimony of different women in america and and the fantasies they have the fantasies are definitely a lot more elaborate uh they generally take longer. Uh, yeah, that's the other there's tragedy. Also, yeah, there's just weird. There's, there's female sexuality is a really unexplored topic because there's studies that have shown um, females actually have a disconnect between what they say they find sexually attractive compared to what they're actually aroused by. There was a there was a study where they um, got women to see various images and videos and and say, are you aroused by it? But then they also had some nodes connected to, I don't know how they did it, but they had some sort of electrical signal from their, yeah, from their um, clitoris. And they basically found everything arousing, (laughs) like even monkey sex and just anything. (laughs) Mm, mm. Actually, Mm. yeah, you know what? No, they are the more disgusting ones. I remember reading that. We're the less disgusting ones because we only like one disgusting thing. But they like everything. Hmm. That's the, porn, the, and I think that that's what happens. Mystery, like, huh? Oh, the, the mystery of uh, female sexuality. Yeah. But I think that actually, one girl uh, was describing it to me recently, and she was reading a book, and she said it never actually occurred to her. So again, if you're one of the four women listening, listen hard. I think that she was saying that female orgasms are completely in the mind of the woman, as in she decides if she wants to orgasm or not. And so she could be doing her fantasy. And if she's just decided, no, I'm not going to come. It's just not going to happen. Whereas with guys, you're going to find a way to come. 
you know, like that just doesn't happen with women. They can just shut it off and just be like, nope, and then just turn over and read a book. They can do mm. that. Whereas like you would be very annoyed and angry if you were just about to nut and then there's just like, yep, that's the end of sex now. Yeah. There's a major psychological component involved in the female orgasm as well as uh, physical. And from all accounts, it's a far better orgasm. Very mm. intense. Mm. And from what I can see, it looks more intense. It looks like a lot of fun. But... Don't think I'm ever going to experience that. Although apparently the male G spot is up our behind. Still not going to mm. be the same. That'll be an awkward prostate exam. <laughs> uh, what overused? Is that what you're uh, saying? You just happen to you happen to come while you're getting a prostate exam, nah. <laughs> or an erection is embarrassing <laughs> enough, let alone jizzing. you have cancer. Oh, yeah. that felt good. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> that was a, a, a weird start. And we probably said a lot of really infuriating things to the four female listeners. So we're going to get to today's topic. Uh, this is from, does he want to be, does he want to be anonymous? This is from W. I'm going to assume anonymity. Um, G'day, Neil. Big fan of both your podcasts. They've really opened my eyes to a whole new world in regards to personal responsibility with some great tips on how to crush mad puss. <laughs> Continually infuriating the female listeners. Puss. I still remember the first review Dude. I read from our Apple Apple podcast reviews was like, a, yeah, it's a good podcast. Just stop saying the word puss so much. No, it's not happening. No. Puss, no, puss, it's, puss. Okay. It's puss, mut, or vajuts. Vajuts? Vajuts. Is that like the Jewish one? <laughs> ah, gonna, show me your vajuts. My, my vajuts, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Hey, you know what I've heard as well, actually, just as a little side? I hear yeah. the Jewish girls are the nastiest girls. Yeah, but because they've been repressed. Yeah, they, look, I mean, yeah, I, every girl, if you if you if you know how to get their wild side out, yeah, God, <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough. That was cringy. Anyway, um, don't you think that I wanted to do? Okay, one one last caveat. Um, I wanted to do a joke about how men will have one sexual experience with one girl, and then that like that's enough of a sample space to make an entire conclusion. Like you'll you'll sleep with one redhead girl who's wild in bed. You'll be like, bro, fucking redheads, just fucking wild in bed, bro. Fucking crazy. It's like, uh, how many redheads have you slept with? Or like two, but still, fuck, they're wild, bro. Uh, you know what? <laughs> Look, <sighs> you should put that in. I think you're right. Man, you know, like when that's when you know a joke's good, when you know it hits home. Bit too true. <laughs> it's a bit too true. Alrighty. Well. All right. Let's get to. I'm gonna stick to the topic now. Yeah. Uh, much of what you've talked about in recent podcasts surround the idea of pursuing success, which, at the end of the day, is what most topics of conversation boil down to. However, I'd be interested to hear you and Jordan talk about how you define success and how your definitions of success have changed over time. 
I'd also be very, very interested to hear how past insecurities slash personal flaws have held you back from achieving your goals. Have you overcame uh, these challenges? And what would you have done differently with the benefit of hindsight? would also be interesting to hear what internal challenges slash flaws are holding you guys back today from achieving your current goals. And what things are you doing to overcome these challenges? What is success for you and what limiting beliefs have you overcome to pursue it? Um, I know that my topic is somehow very specific and broad at the same time, but I hope I've provided you with enough of a prompt to go off. Also, if you could send the link below to Geordie's, that would be much appreciated. Heard through the grapevine. He might be looking for some new editors. All right, well, I'll send that link to Check you. It's me, brother. Have we done this one already? No, we did a similar one that also asked us to talk about our insecurities and, and flaws. Uh, but how about you go first, Jordan? You tell us what what's your definition of success? You know what? This is pathetic because I should really have a defined uh, being able to say that to you like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I always say, I remember doing a podcast a few weeks ago and uh, he asked the question, what's your definition of success? And I said, it's very concise, but um, having a goal and and making steps towards that goal or acquiring wisdom in the pursuit of that goal. So it's not necessarily just achieving the goal, but if you're moving towards that goal, I think you're experiencing success. I think it's really that simple. Look, you are right, but again, you are right in a very Neil way. <laughs> what do you mean? That's exactly, it's just your brain again. It's just a little clock. It's just being like success is setting out a goal and then moving up the steps. And you're right. Mm. That's one way of measuring it definitely. And it's a very, if you can just double up on it, successful way of measuring success. But I think that Tony Robbins said it best when he said that if you want to know what happiness is in one word, it's progress. So I think that what is really happening there in terms of like a chemical thing that is happening in your brain is every time you get to tick off. Yeah. I had that little goal and that's done. Your brain feels success. Um, mm. You know that uh, even if a sporting team you follow wins, you have an uptick in testosterone. You know what? That's amazing, but it also doesn't surprise me. Hmm. Or it might be that if your team loses, you, you go down in testosterone. It was one or the other. I but, reckon uh, it's both. It would probably be both, for sure. I think it is, yeah. And when it's not even sort of physical uh, challenges that you maybe have, if you, if you win a game of chess, your testosterone will go up. So success is inbuilt into our uh, neurochemistry. But see, I, is that it's success? Classic point that's, that... It is success, but it's also victory. Yeah, if, well, that's synonymous. In that in that context, a victory is success. In that context, but that's what I'm saying. In that context, that's success. So mm -hmm. you're having a victory, but what's happening there? You win, the other person loses. And that's a great feeling. You do feel like, ha, sucked in. 
you do feel that. But then there's also, as Stephen Covey points out, win-wins, where both of you just raise up. That's also another way of having success. Mm-hmm. It would also determine, it would also, sorry, depend on your value system and your outlook of the world. So if you are an extremely charitable and altruistic person and your goal in life is to provide as much positive emotion, happiness, contentment, confidence to other people, you may purposely let someone beat you in chess in the same way a a parent might let their child win in any board game. And then they receive that chemical hit and you would also receive a chemical hit because you have achieved something that you've set out to do. So that's an example of, I guess, a mutual victory in the context of a chess game. Hmm. Mm. And you know what else is like, actually, as you just said that, I think that that's the best way to describe it. That's how I would say success is success is however you define success. And that changes all throughout life. As in, if I was where I was seven years ago, I would definitely describe now as success. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, it's not success anymore. Hmm. Whereas now, some people acquiring wisdom is, is success and you have to endure tough times to gain that wisdom. So in a way, that is something that you treat that. See, that's what you're really asking there with what is success. You're really asking, what do you value? Yeah. Yeah. Is there an objective measure of success? Could you say, um, climbing any given hierarchy, achieving a higher status than what you previously may have had will always be successful. I mean, even in an evolutionary sense. Because then your serotonin increases as you climb the social hierarchy. So that is Darwinian success. I don't know. There are definitely so many definitions of success, so many variables at play there. Because, Mm. yeah, you're right. Like on a Darwinian level, I suppose you've got success from going up the hierarchy. But also, heavy lies the crown. You know, I really don't, I don't envy a prime minister or a president. I think that'd be horrible. I think Mm. you'd have a a huge feeling of elation when you win on election night. And then after that, the reality would sink in and you'd realize you're just responsible Mm. for an entire country. Performing the duties involved in being a prime minister or a president would be laborious and horrible, if anything. But like you said the elation when you win and then looking back fondly if you if your presidency is received positively that's when you would start to feel the success do you think john howard sits there now thinking oh yeah oh yeah i achieved success it's been a while since i've done that impression (laughs) oh i make my breakfast It's such a 2005 impression, isn't it? You just forget about yeah, it's it. It's such a Chase's, Chase's yeah. Warren everything impression there, yeah. right? But um, uh, do you think any of the previous, you know, PMs, maybe not the, the ones in the last decade because they didn't 
you know, they didn't last a particularly long term. Hardly any of them even lasted a single term. But before that, do you think Howard looks back and says, I was successful? I'm sure he does. he does. Because I'm sure uh, his value system is uh, changing, is, is achieving the highest office and then putting in place uh, policies and, and sort of uh, ideas that he values, which is what he did. So that's success in his mind, but for a lot of other people, it may not be seen as success. It may not be seen as success for the country, for him and his voters. It would have been seen as success for the country. It's very subjective. It's extremely subjective. You're right. So he's, you know, Tony Robbins is definitely correct in that, that success is however you define it. He actually uses a really good story where he, when he first started golfing, was invited to go over and play with some pros because he's Tony Robbins, so they were big names. And they said, come and play golf with us. And obviously he was getting his ass kicked and he felt what you were talking about before of his testosterone reducing as Jordan Peterson would say, he's obviously like the smallest lobster there and he's shrinking back to make himself smaller. Um, But then he kind of redefined what it was in his mind, which was, I am getting essentially a free lesson from the best golfers on earth. Of course, I'm not going to be better than them. I haven't focused the last 30 years on golfing, but there's so many golf players that would kill to be in this group of people. So obviously I'm going to fuck it up. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to just marvel at the expertise of these people. And I'm just going to soak this in. And that became his gauge for success in that scenario. So you're right. You can just change Mm. it to mean whatever you like. So your personal narrative can determine whether the actions happening to you are either success or failure. So it's entirely malleable. It's entirely malleable. Like, well, he probably can't change the New York. Wow. Wait, hang on. Do you think him switching that narrative around in his head would have actually changed the neurochemistry? Do you think then that drop in testosterone or serotonin or whatever it may have been wouldn't have actually occurred? Because that's marvelous. If that's the case, that's that's really yes. Because he was because Neil he was playing a different game to them. If you're playing chess with someone else and you're playing chess, yes, you are going to reduce in testosterone if you lose. But if you are playing against a grand chess master and you're just there and you're honored to be in the same room as the chess master, your testosterone is not going to drop. You are just going to be amazed that you're in that circle. Mm. So you can change it in your mind. Well, in fact, you know what? That's something that I'm going to do because, look, for, for I, it's not that I th- – I honestly don't think that I'm a naturally intelligent person. I think that I've spent a lot of time reading – And so I seem smarter than the average person that doesn't read. But I think that naturally I don't have that mind that fires off really quickly that is core intelligence, right? But because I've just been in a circle where I've been much more well-read than the average person there, I felt really intelligent. But then I started hanging around with QCs and seasoned journalists that actually, they're not propagandist, lazy pieces of shit. They're actually good at their craft, right? And so they understand the little interlinkages of how things work. And then I started hanging out with politicians 
And like I was saying before, you're just outperformed by these people. The level of intelligence that they have, because not only are they naturally intelligent, they're well-read. It's kind of just like doing little athletics as a kid and then all of a sudden hanging around Usain Bolt. Yeah, you're going to be better than the person that doesn't do little athletics and isn't a good runner, but if someone who is a good runner and they did little athletics and they went on to have the best coach in fucking Barbados or whatever, right, they, they're going to be incredible. And that's what it's like talking to someone who's a QC. I can actually feel my whatever it was, testosterone, serotonin, but I can actually, like, what happens in that scenario is the lobster thing, right? Like, he says something, and you can just sense how much smarter he is than you. And what starts to reverse psychologically is that I'm sitting there, and I start saying stupider things than I otherwise would be saying in that scenario. Do you think that's because you're unconsciously playing a part? Yes. You've yes, accepted I, I am I have the lower status here so I need to play that role. Yes. That's what's happening, but I'm also saying that I can't control it. Like I I intellectually understand that's what's happening. I know that's what's happening. Mm. But it doesn't matter. That's just how hierarchies work. But if I just went in there and I and this is how I've reframed it in my mind is yeah, this guy's smarter than me. And he's way more successful, way more intelligent. What he is able to do with his intellect is truly astonishing. But I just kind of see it as like, I'm looking in on that world now. I'm kind of just a, I'm kind of an observer. I'm just like, the same thing that Tony Robbins is talking about, but to a lesser extent, and I should just reframe it to that of, I'm just happy to be in this situation. I should reframe it to that. Well, but, they may be more intelligent, but you have a much greater influence than any of them. You have an audience of hundreds true. of thousands. So it, it, it just depends how you measure people's status. You know, in, in that given room, he, he may have been far more eloquent and come across that he's got a superior intellect to you. But if someone's measuring people's worth through a different metric, such as influence or uh, success in a given field, I don't think you're that... I don't think you're um, below him or her. No, and you know what? That is To a actually, noticeable degree. No. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that is actually how, but that is obviously, I think that's just an insecurity in general. Just when you are in a room of people that are better than you, you obviously just naturally feel insecure. Um, yeah, And it's absolutely. not that I'm taking it away from him. He has well earned that position and he's naturally gifted, obviously, and he's made the best of his gifts. He's just an exemplar of a human being. He really is. And he's altruistic as well. He's got a purpose in life. He's trying to reform the legal system for a better legal system for everybody. And that requires unbelievable intellect. Um, but I think that actually that is how I define success now is impact. I'll tell you what, Neil, I've got this idea at the moment. I was looking at, um, 
just it came up in my feed. I don't know if you ever saw that. It went viral a bit before, but it was like this dog sanctuary in Costa Rica. And there's a thousand dogs there that otherwise lived on the streets and obviously got run over by cars, abused. You look at a lot of them and they've got missing legs in their mangy. They were the worst of the worst treated dogs in a third world country. They've just been taken yeah. into this big farm. Uh, and, you know, they don't have owners and probably, well, actually, no, now there's about 10 adoptions a week because it's become mega, mega famous. 10 adoptions a week, but they, you know, have just built huge kennels put out all this food for them every day. They eat that and then they just run around the farm and they're happy because they're hanging around a thousand other dogs. They have a really nice, enjoyable mm. life. And then I was thinking, my God, with my influence, uh, it would actually be really easy for me to do that. There would be so many, for lack of a better word, basic bitches out there that couldn't give a fuck about native animals or anything like that. But they're just like, oh my God, it's a good boy. I love good boys. And like a lot of people would feel a lot of guilt, like I do actually, that I think it's something like 250,000 dogs are put down a year in Australia just because, and like, yeah, okay, a lot of them would be aggressive psycho dogs that they can't really have a home, so they've got to go. But there would be a lot of dogs in there that there's nothing wrong with them at all. They just got a bad lot in life. How much would like 100 acres cost? Maybe a couple of hours outside of Sydney, maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars. You build uh, the world's biggest kennel, I suppose. You fence it. There would be a bunch of volunteers that would be very happy to do that. And I reckon that also it could actually act as a giant worm farm. There's heaps of food that's wasted every year, including meat, meat that's off for human beings but isn't off for dogs, uh, grains, all that kind of stuff, dog food as well. I'm sure there's like a bunch that would just get donated. You chuck that all in. It really wouldn't cost that much. And then dog poo isn't the best fertilizer but it's compost you just put it in a giant compost heap you've got dog poo there and you're doing something good for everything that goes in there and then it just becomes a big adoption agency like that she started it with nothing imagine if you just said hey here's a charity drive let's just get a million dollars going you're killing so many birds with one stone you attach it to something like animal rescue collective which does incredible work for native animals anyway and you're giving them a really big profile boost by saying hey this is the first dog sanctuary in the country people from across the globe go to the dog sanctuary in costa rica they walk around with these thousand dogs um uh you know well, because it's just like just for fun i suppose that that's what would happen there it would become a tourist attraction you know like I, I, now I see success as kind of like how many of those ideas can I have where they're just kind of just a really simple fix, which is like there's dogs going out, there's wasted food. This is a great charity that needs a PR move. It's mm. just, you know, th those kind of win-wins is what how I define success now. Well, I think that's very mature because success doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. You achieving success doesn't mean someone else has to fail. When you look at it in the context of a competition or sport, that's very prevalent. But something like what you've just described, that's success for you. That's success for any charity involved. That's success for the volunteers, hopefully. Success for a lot of dogs. So no one is failing. No one's not being successful in that situation. 
if you can succeed, but not at the expense of other people, I think that's a really virtuous pursuit of success. I mean, it's nowhere near the same, but what I'm trying to do, well, no, it's been put on hold because of the lockdown, but what I was trying to do with that uh, small show I was running regularly was it's great for me. It's, it's success for me. It's, it's regular content and it's live shows, but they're coupled together and they were always separate, which was frustrating when you went through a um, lengthy touring period. But this is an opportunity for other comedians to finally get exposure. Because what do I have that a lot of other great comedians in Australia don't have? An audience. Okay, how can I help them with my audience? Give them exposure to my audience. It also improves the quality of the show. When you have five comedians contributing uh, to the overall quality of a show, it's invariably going to be better than if one person contributes to it. And everyone's succeeding in that situation, you know, there's no, sure. I'm, I'm getting a, a smaller slice of the pie, but the overall quality would increase. And, and as a result in the long term, that pie gets bigger to the extent where my overall slice would be bigger than whatever my initial slice would have been if I had been greedy in the mm. initial phase, you know, I was thinking of how I could possibly do that with podcasts and I was writing down a few ideas actually last week. Now, these are all very coarse. I don't think uh, I'd be enacting these anytime soon, but I was thinking, what's so effective about a pyramid scheme? Why does someone decide to get involved in a pyramid scheme when a certain portion of their profits is just going to the person ahead of them? Well, they have to be getting something in return. Uh, in the same way, I guess, why would someone choose to open a franchise when they could just open their own burger joint. Well, they get the branding. So overall, they feel like it's a better deal for them. So if there was some sort of way you can adapt some of the characteristics of a pyramid scheme, but involve it in, 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 in a podcast network, uh, could something like that work where you start off with just this podcast, the Neil and Jordan podcast, and you say, all right, each year we're going to have for a guest podcast where we get someone else's podcast and in the same way I'm doing with comedy, like giving them exposure to our audience, which is quite notable now. Thank you, everyone who subscribed. <laughs> uh, we say, all right, for four podcasts a year, we do a full split podcast where we just, it's like the two of us here now, but we'd have two other people from another podcast or one other person or three other, whoever. And we just tell everyone, go check out these guys' podcasts. All right, so we do that four times a year. And then hopefully those other podcasts then grow. And then they do that same initiative. They say, all right, we're going to now have four guest podcasts this year. And hopefully those next podcasts will grow. And the only thing they have to do in return is just say, all right, um, go follow the Neil and whichever podcast gave them their start or gave them that initial exposure, they just have to say, all right, go listen to them if you haven't already. Uh, so with like a, a, a pyramid scheme in its traditional sense, you're dealing with sort of monetary value there. But in this situation, it would be a pyramid scheme for, I guess, social capital or uh, exposure, if you will. Um, mm. And then the only sort of through line that would connect every podcast is, is, is something like, all right, now that these podcasts are entirely for charity, we just say, all right, for all the podcasts part of this network, you just have to either make it fully for charity or you just have to say a certain portion of your revenue goes to charity or there has to be some sort of initiative 
that goes to charity. And then right at the end of the year, every podcast in that network, we total all the, um, uh, each individual podcasts amount of charity they've accrued over that year. And we, uh, announce the grand total and we try and grow that each year. And maybe I was even thinking the big podcast marathon where it's just a week long live stream of some of the, uh, you know, undiscovered podcasts in Australia and it's a, you do four hours each. And then in the last hour, you almost sort of hand it over to the next podcast and it just mm. goes on for a week and people could just tune in at any, any moment and just keep donating. So, uh, those ideas were kind of mulling about in my head, um, mm. last mm. week. I mm. still have to kind mm. of nut this out if I'm even going to mm. do it, but, mm. uh, something like that is another example. And, and it's something that I think has switched in me in the last couple of months as well, where I'm not just looking out for success for me alone i'm trying as best i can i'm not you know we're all very self-interested beings but i'm trying to see how my success can also be someone else's or other people's success um and i think it sounds like you're doing that too and i think that's what you have to aim for because it's very gratifying to know that well first of all you've achieved something but you've helped someone else achieve something or you've sort of mutually achieved something together that's really it's a better feeling than, um, you know, doing those shows to 50 people, but with a crew of, uh, great friends having fun times together. It's, it's a better feeling than performing to whatever it was, 1700 people at the end mall, which is, I think the, uh, highest crowd I've performed to largest crowd I performed to, I should say. It was um, a better feeling so, than that. Yeah. Yeah. Hands down. Doesn't that hands say everything down. you need to know? It says everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, hands down a better feeling. Not even close, really. And you know what else as well, actually? I've noticed that. When you do do stand-up shows to those huge audiences, it actually mm. is more isolating. You you crave the idea Very. of thousands and thousands and thousands of people watching, but that rift between you and them becomes greater. I'm Which glad is actually, again, it. why I prefer doing shows to 200 people. Like yeah, that yeah. sort of actually hundred. I don't like that much. Maybe like one hundred and fifty to three hundred. I like that kind of sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, look, in an ideal world, you you can perform to that amount of people with the crew of people that you've accumulated. But true, uh, that's a goal. That's a goal to aim for, aim towards. And then if I ever achieve that, that would I would deem that successful. Um, and they chuck in all their ideas as well. That's the other way that it works because you've just got more brain capital. It doesn't matter how much of a genius you are. You're not going to have all the ideas yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he's, he's asked, I'd also be interested to hear how past insecurities slash personal flaws have held you back from achieving your goals. And that was the one that we had another person ask us what our kryptonite was that's what i was um that's what triggered my memory um how you overcame these challenges what would you have done differently uh, with the benefit of hindsight see those sorts of questions are always perplexing because if you do things differently you wouldn't have that same hindsight in order to try and do things differently you know what i mean if you made some mistakes earlier in your life and you learned from that, then you can't really say, oh, I would have done that differently because then you wouldn't have learned from those mistakes because you wouldn't have made those mistakes. So I wouldn't want to have done anything differently because 
I mean, it could be the case that I, I try something, I, you know, in some hypothetical scenario, I can go back in time and do things differently that I feel like in hindsight are mistakes. But then who's to say the lessons I learn from whatever other mistakes I may have made or lack thereof would be would leave me off any better in the present time in this hypothetical scenario than what I am now. So it depends if you wanted the same thing, but you're kind of right because if you corrected those things and you might want to have wanted something different, Jesus, it's a really, you're right. It's, it's a riddle. Yeah, you can't. You know what it's, it is? What? It's like it's like all those uh, TV shows and films where uh, they go back in time and they say, oh, well, don't mess with the past because it'll affect the future and they have to, or unless you have to do something, then you have to then make sure you do it. It's the classic trope. And I think that applies to these sorts of questions. Uh, I, I can give other people advice based on hindsight, but I wouldn't, okay, obviously you can't change the past, but I wouldn't sort of, think about those hypothetical scenarios anyway, because you learn the lessons you do from the mistakes you make. And those are often very valuable, more valuable than whatever short-term high you may feel in during success uh, or in a period of success. And if you go about trying to change things, you wouldn't learn those lessons. It's a simple, it's, it's, well, it's, convoluted but i think it's as simple as that i'll tell you like all right let's just do it like this then what when you do think about what you want to change what are the things that spring to mind but also how they would have been beneficial to you okay look I'll, i'll give this one so for instance the fact that i was just like it's so easy to just ring up experts and ask them and that saves you so much time of trawling through all of these articles and uh essays and all that kind of stuff trying to look for clues because they've already read them so they can point you down the right direction right and they can just save you all that time so i would have done that sure so i guess that's a very sort of of like menial yeah, I, I wish that I was better at networking than I am. But okay. I think that I'm just such an insular person that I really just like sitting there and thinking and nutting something out that it never occurs to me to, or it didn't occur to me until very recently to even ask other people for help or anything like that. Because I'm always just trying to figure it out in my head. But I think that if I didn't sit there and figure things out in my own head, there's no way I would be as unique as I am because you would kind of just be more of an amalgamation of the other people around you. And again, because you aren't sitting there insular by yourself thinking about these things, you're more influenced by other people's ways of thinking. And so Mm. like what you were saying, I suppose, when you were saying that, you know, there's no real YouTube channel like friendly Geordie's. That is because it's kind of just my brain, basically. (laughs) And so that's... The warped world of your brain. The warped world of my brain. 
And so that was that way. And you just wouldn't, I don't think that it would look like that if I was just asking all these experts and saying, oh, how does a TV show work? And then you have an expert say, well, you do this, this, and this, and this, and it might be more successful, but it also would be more generic. And so you wouldn't have the unique insights that you've had. So like, it's kind of that, that I suppose that's the, what I'm saying there. So yeah, what, what's like an example of that for you? Well, just before I get to that, if there's any piece of wisdom in relation to that sort of a question, it's just trust the process and don't be afraid of making mistakes. Yeah, definitely. Because you can learn so much more from those. Um, mm. So for me, something like that. Um, we're talking about just very rudimentary things. I wouldn't be as precious about what I put out online. I used to be very particular, ensuring that I uh, maintained a certain image and that everything was of the utmost quality. But as you know, sometimes uh, with the algorithm the way it is, you have to play the game and you have to go for quantity over quality. Um, but I think what the best YouTubers do is they have their quality pieces, they often come out far less regularly, but then they have their regular content. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm seeing that with you. I think I'm seeing that with the documentaries that come out sparsely, but they're brilliant when they do. And then the regular content, which isn't bad, but it's not as impactful as say the blood water documentary. Um, and you can do both. You don't have to choose one or the other. You don't have to be the purist that comes out with high art every single week. And you don't have to be the uh, formulaic generic influencer that has to post three TikToks a day. You can have a side to your persona, which is posting regularly, picking up on day-to-day uh, -day observations and making funny, relatable, universal content whilst also uh, having arms to what you do that are deeper and hopefully more impactful. So that's one thing that I would, I guess, tell my uh, younger self. But even then, I probably came to that conclusion because I was so obsessed with putting it out a certain way. Um personal yeah. flaws and insecurities yeah. i was uh like with everyone who's young and look i did achieve internet fame pretty early on an ego did grow from that <laughs> and then it took a few years for that to i guess come down well uh, let's be honest a bit of it's still there but uh be humble just a classic piece of wisdom there that I think can apply to everyone be humble and and like you say trust the experts just trust people with experience um there's always wisdom in in experience wisdom in the elders you know what that. actually the, the, the boomers that were in media <laughs> they are right and i always just thought that this was really trite but it's something that bill shorten is always trying to impart on me i think because he's Bill Shorten. You can tell that he's an empathetic man. It wouldn't surprise me at all, actually, if he was estrogeny. 
he's somebody that intuitively picks up on you. In fact, he said that the way that he conducts himself in interviews, I said, what happens? And he said, I just try and pick up on the vibe of the other person. And so it takes me a bit to get into their world and their way of speaking. And by the time that happens, the interview's over. So that's why he always had that little deer in the headlights thing that everybody always said that he was terrible on camera. And it's because he's kind of just, and the other thing is the other person's being extremely combative to him, obviously, but he's trying to enter their world and they're pushing him out. So he's just kind of a deer in a headlights, but he said, he said, he's always saying this to me when he speaks to me, actually, he says that you should be listening to everyone regardless of their status in life, because they all have something to teach you. And it is, you know, one of those things where you hear it and you think, uh, yeah, Th those kind of niceties that you say, like the things that you say that you see on like, I don't know, like a 45 year old mum's Instagram or something. Well, it's um, true though. It's, it's, I couldn't agree with him true. more. He's right. Isn't he? Like every, in fact, when I think about it, every single person that I've ever spoken to, I have picked up on something. I have learned something. Now, some Everyone people obviously some, have something to teach you. They all have something to teach you, something that you can meld into whatever you're doing if you have your own path in life, really. And similarly to success, your personal narrative will determine whether what they're saying is enriching you or it is um, hindering you. So if you have that narrative that Bill has, which is everyone has someone has something to teach me. Well, it's successful just to talk to someone or to listen to them. Fuck, you're right. Whereas if you have a different narrative surrounding that, you could talk to the same person that Bill talks to and think, oh, this person's an idiot. What are they? They've just, they've just wasted 20 minutes of my time. But it comes back to the narrative. And I read an article the other day, which uh, was talking about that and, and, and you know, the, the way in which you see yourself in the world or in a given environment is a huge factor in how well you will perform in that environment. And this was within the context of a corporate setting. What it also said, which I'd never thought about before, is like we need to keep updating our personal narratives because sometimes they become outdated. They need to adapt. They need to change. If you've had the same narrative from when you were 15 to when you were 45, well, you might not have actually learned anything in those 30 years. Mm. Mm. So it might be worthwhile to actually sit down and say, well, what are you, what are you telling yourself? If you were to write a story about your life, how would it go? And you have the power to change that. You are the author of that. You can, you can change all sorts of things about that are things happening to you or are things happening to you for you to learn things you that can I determine that... that can change so many perceived failures into successes because though in the moment it may have had an adverse effect on your emotional state it's had a positive effect on your accruing bank of wisdom I think you're right. Hmm. I, while you were just describing that, that is how I 
intuitively do. And again, describes back on the thing that I just, if, if, if I could do it again, I'd do it differently. But I do have a brain that is always thinking, this is a waste of time. Anytime I talk to virtually anyone, unless it's specifically about my goals, I'm always sitting there thinking, no, nah, I don't have time for this. I'll dismiss it outright. Anyone that tries to just be like, hey, let's have a sit down and talk about things. Just, no. Or like, I'll just get out try to get out of the situation as quickly as possible. And that is because I have the mindset that you were just talking about then. And that is sort of a win-lose mindset as opposed to what Bill Shorten is talking about, which actually is a win-win mindset. That is a win-win mindset, which is that like, if we just have a little chat, we'll learn things. Yeah. I always learn a lot from, from just talking to you actually. Yeah. And likewise, yeah. Your mind really is a warped world, but it's a warped world with plenty of, gems of wisdom yeah it is that isn't it that's that is my brain but again it is because of isolation i think that's what happens but yeah i think that that's something that is being very constructive about this podcast particularly which is actually something that i think is kind of like find a vehicle that does naturally play to you in that uh, it's just like the, the way that I justify this in my mind is this is work. This is work. So I'm just able to do it. But the thing is that you have a brain that is very inquisitive and sits there and unpacks things. And it's very useful to talk to you. You know, there's like a, there's, there's, there's a lot of benefits because of that and how your brain works. And in fact, if you read the comments, you hear that a lot about you. You hear that a lot. People enjoy. No, it's not even an enjoy thing. I think it's kind of a thing of like a lot of people just don't They don't extrapolate on an idea like you do. Well, everyone has their unique way of unpacking an idea. And but I that's just it. Try that's to, the uh, whole thing. You dissect it. You actually do dissect yeah. an idea. Yeah. I uh, try to see it from every angle, from every yeah. perspective. Yeah. Try. Mm. But that's, that's actually... That's the whole thing. You actually do try to do that. Well, I mean, one, I enjoy doing that. And I, and I think that is success to me. Uh, figuring out a new perspective or a new angle on something that I maybe didn't think of before or couldn't see. And I think that's what, I think we've talked about this, but that's what really good comedians do. They help you see the world from a different angle. And, and, and humor is the mechanism through which they do that.
That's why I tell you the best comedians will deal with very serious and often dark topics because by bringing humor into that conversation, which you normally wouldn't associate with said topic, they are opening the door to that different perspective. Look, I don't know if I've talked to you about this yet. I probably have, so just shut me up if I have. But just when I was looking at the difference between Conan O'Brien and Craig Ferguson, I was looking at it and Conan O'Brien, the way that he says a joke is constructed. And some people, to the untrained eye, you'll look at what he's doing and you'll just be like, yeah, he's improvising, he's just riffing. He's not. There's a very obvious structure there. He understands humor theory. Uh, he's very practiced in it. He understands the concept of improvisation itself. When you watch someone like Craig Ferguson, I really don't think that he does. And that's the genius of that man. And that's why I find it endlessly more fascinating. And actually, you know how both of us always have that huge appreciation of the guy, the comedian that you see, that you say is going to be definitely the best comedian you'll ever see in your life. And no one will ever see him. There'll always be four people at his show. Yeah. And they're just a mess. And the whole show is just completely improvised from start to finish. But it's magical. I think that those are the two different constructs of joke that are there. And the one that we are following is structure. The way that we come up with a joke is a skill that you learn and hone. And yeah. this makes me endlessly angry, a angry, actually. Like it, it actually, it always reminded me of at school, I've said this before, but that's the whole thing that I have with Miss Love is that we were sort of both the class clowns of our school. Uh, he would shine just riffing with his friends and stuff and, and, and me and like we, we, he was great in that kind of scenario. But when it came to school speeches, I'd blow him out of the water. I'd blow everyone out of the water because there was structure there. I didn't realize it at the time because I was 15, but performance is a coordinated dance. Talking to people, it's a lot more loose and improvised and it, it comes with a mindset. And you actually might understand this because you were just watching, uh, you, you were just reading Freud, but remember when he was describing humor as a dream? or very close to a dream as in when you yes. see a joke, when a joke happens, there's a lot of things, any joke that normally happens, there's a lot of things that you just have to accept as being real very quickly to get to yes. even like a logical outcome in it. Right. You know, like even something as simple as just a meme, if you just see, uh, there was one the other day that made me laugh a lot. And it was just an old, old, old meme that I forgot about. And I was like, oh, that's right. That's, that was fucking hilarious. But it was just, I am legend. 
but somebody had just made his leg huge and then put Will Smith's face on that leg and then just cut it. So it was just, I am leg. And I was just like, I, I remember right. like crying with laughter when I saw that. Now there's a lot of things that are happening there in terms of like, there's connections there as in you understand that that is, I am legend and you understand that they're just trying to make that stupid. Hmm. But there's also something there that is dreamy. The person that made that meme and the reason that I laugh at it and I appreciate it, I think is because I can't do what they do. And that's like what I found really uh, beneficial writing scripts with mislove and nobody understands this, but you would probably understand it is like when I'm writing a script, I could write this script by myself and it'll be fine. And I can do it, you know, quick, smart. Like I didn't realize how much of a skill I have writing a script until I sat down with someone that doesn't know how to write a script. And it's just like, bam, joke, bam, joke, reword this sentence like this, joke, 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 joke. But he just sits back and imagines. And every now and then something just comes out where you're just like, where the fuck did that come from? Because you and I do exist in that world of structure and we learned how to write comedy. It doesn't come naturally to us, but that's where when it, when it comes to the wacky and the absurd and the weird, that's not our realm. Now, I used to dismiss that and think, oh, Hey, but Neil, don't you think like, this is well though? To learn it. One sec, one sec. You know that you can manufacture the absurd. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like there's jokes that you have made that they're like technically absurd. And this is the thing that I hate again about like your, your fucking mighty booshes, for instance. Right? Like I, I see it. I know that the average person would be like, that's absurd, but I know that's not absurd, but it's a joke technique that still exists, but keep going. Sorry. That's true. It's not, our comedy is not a void of that. But it's not our, it's not the main component of what no. either of us do. No, no, no. And that's just a, a, a major style of humor that resonate with a lot of people. And it does to me when it's done aggressively, it can resonate with me, but it's not my personal taste and it's just not something I'm particularly good at so it's helpful to have other people who are proficient in that style sitting there with you improving your work mm. as it sounds like miss love is doing with you mm. Mm. but this is the thing i don't know if it's a style i think that they just have a like chemical difference that we don't have because for years I've been trying to figure out why does that man funny or like, why is Craig Ferguson funny? And I honestly think that it's just a chemical component. Like there's just something in the back of our minds that is trying to sit there and break it down. And I think, I don't know about you, Neil, but this is the thing that always, you know, obsesses with me when this happens, but 
I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if this is the same with you, but when I can't figure out why something's funny, that's when I will laugh the hardest. When I'm just like. Interesting. No, I can't say I've had that particular experience. You know what? When I have laughed the hardest, there has actually been some level of absurdity to what is being presented to me, but it's almost an afterthought or it's sort of making fun of the absurd. It's, it's <clears throat> multi-layered on some, on some level, you know, it, I haven't seen this. I am leg meme, but what's funny about that to me is the fact that it's so bad. Mm. But mm. it's put out there almost as a mm. parody of memes. And that's mm. what makes it funny. Mm. It it mm. reminds me of that page. There's a there's a Facebook page called Shit Memes, I think. And and there's a craft to that. Making memes that are so shit, but they're just they're they're right in that Overton window because if they're too shit, you just dismiss them as that's just shit. And if they're not quite shit enough, you think, oh, that's just a, a bad attempt at a good meme. But they're that appropriate level of, of shit that mm. Mm. that make it funny on a, on a, on a, on a meta level. <laughs> Dude, you're right. And it's making me laugh now. You're right. You're right. But, but that's, that's, that's a skill. You're right. I think, that's with that a skill. Leg. It is, it's a skill. No, you can't just do – that's not an easy thing to do. And I think that style was popularized. I think I would say it went hand-in-hand hand with, I guess, the hipster comedy. But there were a lot of – bad incarnations of that and a lot of them are still famous now actually in my opinion Um, and 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 it's it has to be done well because like i just said if you go too far one way it just looks like bad comedy and if you go too far the other way it's just bad (laughs) so you need to hit that perfect mark of self-aware but not too self-aware and shit without it being too shit um you know what well, it is, I like though? It like, when it's done aggressively. What do you mean? Well, what's an example? Uh, in some of my earlier videos, when I was doing those uh, impressions, a lot of people would say, oh, you just yelled to gain attention. Now, that wasn't my intention with the, with the yelling. The yelling was... It was almost a frustration... It was a it was an outpouring of emotion that these impressions are accurate but also absurd and aggressive and have elements of being shit in the way that they're repetitive to the point where you're laughing at the attempt at, of impressions themselves. I think that's what I was going for. I mean, a, a lot of this is an unconscious process, so I can't fully analyze it, but... Uh, there, there is that just this slither of absurdity that I really enjoy in in some comedy, um, but it needs to be that it needs to be in that Goldilocks zone, or else I really don't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it needs to be that. But see that is the skill of how do you get into that Goldilocks zone. But actually, the more that I've been hanging out with Miss and and sitting there and workshopping ideas with him, 
the more I realize that everybody kind of has things that they they'll have like a few techniques that they use over and over again. I think that one that is very, very potent every time is something that is shit. You're not pointing out that it's shit. In fact, if anything, you're almost celebrating it. That's always like, that's, you know, nothing in this is always like a guaranteed thing, but that is going to be close is going to be close. Like, look, I really, really quick yeah. off the top of my thoughts head is just like Hamish and Andy once did this horse race where everybody who was contending was just two people in a horse suit going down like a, a, an actual horse track. So there was no horses. It was just everyone in horse costumes and they were running in the horse costumes and the fact that they were right. making the nation pay attention to that race and they were just like commentating on that race, just being like, this is unbelievable. Like just, just making it seem like it was an actual horse race. And it was like as big as the Melbourne cup, you know, that, that, kind of, that, that's, is just like a funny idea, right? Like just bringing a shit idea to the, the absolute pinnacle of celebration, I think is good fertile ground for laughing. Yeah. You're yeah, right. It's like, and... sh shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like they are the, the thing that every time we're always just talking about this, actually, now that we're writing, it's just like, he will always come up with an idea that you're right. It is like the iron leg thing. It's kind of like a crummy crap idea. And every time I'm always coming up with a really mean idea, a really fucking nasty idea. And, you know, sometimes it's too crummy and sometimes it's too nasty. You just like it, but there's like, there's like a yeah. pattern that your brain goes in when it's doing humor. There's a pattern that your brain goes into. Definitely, definitely. You need to hit that point of if you are going to be nasty, you need to complement that with with wacky. Not necessarily shit, but there needs to be other like ingredients to it. Yeah, you need to maintain the tone, the, the comedic tone. Mm. Because otherwise it's just mean. It's a scathing critique. And it's not satire. Mm. But that's like, that, that is definitely well, an what, element of humor, right? Yeah, like you've seen that, right? When, when someone just puts someone down, even if they're kind of not really doing that much to, but if someone is, well, that's just classic stand-up comedy 101 is responding to hecklers. Or some of the funniest stuff that I've ever seen in my life is John Laws being mean to callers that ring him up. I've had cried. Show me a few of those. They are funny. They're funny, they aren't are they? Funny. Yeah. You know what? I, I know I've been banging on about hormones so much, but I'm just reading a fair bit into them. And it's, it's interesting because people with a, usually men, but people higher in testosterone find mean, aggressive humor funny. 
but it's not for everyone. Because mm. 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 I remember so, even when I was younger, it wasn't to my liking when some comedians came across too abrasive, but now I love it. I can't get mm. enough of it. Mm. Mm. But you know what else? But I think that's also like when it comes to age, there's just certain things that give you the shits. I really understand. I never understood it as a kid, but when your dad or something like that, if you slam the door when you went home and they just fucking lose it, you know, but like the older you get, the more you just get into that mindset of some things just really tick you off. And if someone just points out how much that ticks you off, I think the older you get, the more you enjoy that. And like, I think that when yes. you're younger, you, yeah, you're kind of into more. What are you into when you're a kid? Some things just never go out of style. I'm telling you like very juvenile SpongeBob SquarePants is such a good example of what childish humor is that's done well. And it's just stupid facial expression, stupid sounds. There is joke technique there, but like it's, there's definitely joke technique, but a lot of it is just funny drawings. And like a voice that sounds <laughs> silly. And actually Kevin Rudd was saying this once. He was just like, the reason that I, that I resonate with your humor is because I think I have like a 12 year old's humor, but this is something that adults won't fucking admit to themselves. And this is something that I'm like very, very happy about with you, Neil, which is that you don't have this like sophisticated feel about yourself of like, that's a silly voice. You understand that silly voices are funny. And in fact, Kevin Rudd was kind of just saying silly voices really are like 50% of comedy. If you can just imitate someone well, that's funny. That's very, very funny. Uh, if you just like yeah, those... mimic someone or mock them in a like voice, it's like, it's, it's getting into humorous <laughs> territory. <laughs> well, just the way you made that noise was funny. Um, anyone yeah. who says that dismiss them entirely. They're not comedians. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, this idea that there's higher forms of comedy and there's lower forms of comedy. I mean, look that you could make that argument, but that should never detract from lowbrow humor. I've made highbrow satirical films that have gone viral across the world and i've made very silly aggressive skits about dudes from the area and if they both evoke laughter but can also make people see things from a different perspective i've done my job i've been successful in that oh. little i know you know what i always um, see it as situation. I can't i've never made this link before but I'm, I'm too, I, I really don't understand what I'm saying and people get pissed off at me when I do, but something like mixed martial arts, right? Surely that must be better than any form of pure martial art in itself is just, it wasn't that Bruce Lee's whole thing is just combining a bunch of martial arts and just being like, that's what works. Just getting elements yeah, from every. what you're going for. Yeah. Look in a straight fight, probably. Yeah. Um, 
if you're just looking for overall fighting proficiency yet, but if you're looking to master a craft, no, you'd want to be laser focused in one particular martial art. Yeah, but in terms of effectiveness, in terms of what gets the job done, I'm assuming, I don't know, but if you knew a bunch of different techniques from different martial arts, you'd fare better than the guy that just knows judo. In most situations, yes. In most situations, I mean, if it's a really high-level judo um, practitioner versus someone who's been doing MMA for a couple of months, maybe not, but... If we control for other variables, the same amount of time spent learning the various disciplines, then I'm going to guess yes. But even I don't really know what I'm talking about there. But it just seems... But it's fair to assume. Yeah. It's fair to assume. It's fair to assume. And I think that that's the way that you should... And that's obviously how you view humor, which is that, as you just said then, whatever gets the job done if a silly sound gets the job done good, if like an incisive observation gets the job done good, if a, if a madcap absurdist image gets the job done fine. But as you said, at, sorry, at the very beginning of all of this, it's about making people think differently and even just making, just being like in it, like it kind of just breaks the tension and makes your brain just makes it think about other shit. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we start the podcast with that noise all the time. I like that. Um, yeah, you could. All right, to wrap this one up, I'm just going to make sure we've covered everything. What is the most? Yeah, we've talked about success, insecurities, personal flaws. Um, yeah, we've touched on that. I had some other, I, I suppose I had, major insecurities that propped up is is that i i I was just too stuck in my ways and i think being adaptable uh being open-minded is something that will always help you in the long run um what have you done differently the benefit of hindsight what internal challenges are holding you guys back today from achieving your current goals I'm still working on my discipline. I'm always working on that. I talk about it a lot, but it's definitely something that you can continually improve on. If I look at my general conscientiousness now compared to one or two years ago, it it, it has improved. And I hope that in another one or two years, it improves as well. <laughs> yeah. You know what else as well? Like ever since you've just been focusing a lot on discipline, it shows. It definitely does show when you start taking discipline seriously and then you just keep realizing how undisciplined you actually are. So that's a lifetime pursuit is discipline. Yes, it is a virtue. I think the, 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 Turning back the dial when you're in a small period of ill discipline is extremely important because you can continually be disciplined on the days you're passionate about doing whatever it is that you want to do. But as soon as you just feel that little, 
as soon as you just feel your brain switch to procrastination mode, that's when you have to fight it. In the same way, people who go to the gym will always say, well, it's the days when you don't really want to go. Those are the days you have to push yourself to go because as soon as you get out of a routine, then negative thought patterns and the negative thought track will ensue and that will just exacerbate the problem. But if you can nip that in the bud, if you can just feel that procrastination coming, sitting there looking at your phone for a bit too long, that's where the discipline comes in. Not enough now, turn it off, put it somewhere in a different room. Because those little onsets of distraction will, will definitely occur. And I'm working on that. Just that it's not an overall grand picture of this is exactly what I need to do every day. But just as soon as those little moments of uh, procrastination or sort of self-indulgence come about, nipping them in the bud as soon as possible. That's something I'm working on. Dude, that... That is micromanagement in the good way. That's how it is. There's those teeny little micro actions. You've got it exactly it's the little right. Things. Those are the things. It's the little things. If you can iron really, those yeah. out, you've done it right. Because if you don't iron out the little you listen to that. Everyone that's asking about it, that's what you do. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, you're not going to iron out the big things. Yep. Because it's much easier to iron out the teeny things. Ensure that those 15 minutes of scrolling on your phone doesn't become two hours, you're fine. Mm. But once that gets to the point of the two, three, four hours scrolling on your phone, well, then you're just in a negative spiral and then you feel yeah. bad that you did that. You're lost. And you're lost. Yes. Yes. So getting it nice and early. Kill cutting monster the little while it's little. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. That is success. Killing the monster while it's little. Uh, any concluding right. remarks from you? I'll give you this one other little teeny piece of knowledge. That uh, like I have to remind myself all the time, but I think this is very related to success. And if you're dealing with any insecurities, these two little things that Tony Robbins distilled really work, which is that information is not power information is potential power action is power but but that's not to dismiss information but it is a misnomer to say that information is power it's what you do with that information so life i think is just a constant process of doing what neil said then which is micromanaging 
every little action that you do so that you have the capacity and muscle built up for discipline. And then it's obviously accumulating knowledge so that you can combine that discipline with the knowledge that you have. I think that that's what that, that that's that's what that is saying there and if you're able to combine those two things just everything in life just starts to increase so that's and that's what they mean by power and that's actually tony robbins's definition of power which is that power is the ability to do what you set out to do and in fact that's like when you're talking about power in nations right who's in power who has the ability to do things? So that's what I'll say. At the end of the day, if you want, look, Neil has his definitions for success. I have mine, but it just depends on where your mind is at the moment. And it's very obvious listening to Neil and the way that he conducts his life. He is in a pursuit of wisdom. And that is why I like talking to him a lot is because he's interested in pursuing wisdom. I'm interested in pursuing impact. And so that really just depends on your definition of success. But the way that you get there is by those two modes, uh, you know, collecting information, acting on it. That's it. Beautiful. Very accurate summation of what we're both looking to achieve. Uh, thank you, W, for the topic. If you'd like to send in a topic, neilcolhatka.com slash podcasts. One last plug. Let's be shameless. Get that CBD oil, crushorganics.com. Use the code Neil. That'd you want to achieve deal. success? You get, you get this. Yeah, sleep's <laughs> important. Yes, it definitely is. All right. Well, thank you for listening, guys. We will we'll see you next time. Bye, guys.